Welcome to the Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. Tim Page is a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer, editor, and critic who has forged a remarkable career from his passionate interests. As a child, he became a minor celebrity when Kodak promoted his amateur filmmaking in a commercial. His lifelong love of music led him to become a world-class critic with the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other newspapers. Page has written or edited more than 20 books, championing the work of pianist Glenn Gould, novelist Don Powell, and composer Virgil Thompson. More recently, he has written in his book Parallel Play about his discovery in his mid-40s that he has a form of autism. In 2008, he founded an interdisciplinary music and journalism program at the University of Southern California, where he taught for over 10 years. In 2015, he suffered a traumatic brain injury, a life-changing event from which he is still gradually recovering. We spoke while Page was living in the Manhattan apartment he has rented and occupied on and off since his days as a Columbia University student. So I wanted to thank you, Tim, for joining us on the Story Talks Back, and uh, we really appreciate your time and effort. It's a great honor, Dave. It's great to see you again, uh, even from such a distance perspective. <laughs> right. Um, I want to start by just talking to you about, uh, you know, stories in your life beginning at a logical place, which I think is your childhood, um, when you were the subject of uh, a well-known short documentary, A Day with Timmy Page, uh, which really chronicled your efforts to make movies. You made a lot of uh, movies when you were a 10-year-old boy. Um, so I wondered if you could tell us a little about how you got interested in movies and what those movies were about. Um, well, the movies were, um, I, I got interested in movies because I became fascinated by silent film. And uh, there were very kind librarians in, um, at the University of Connecticut those days who let this weird little obsessive kid get access to the, the, what he really loved, which was, um, you know, going and uh, reading about silent movies. I was also fascinated by old records at the same time. And I think, I think between the two of them, uh, I, that, that's really when everything kind of exploded in my brain. I became fascinated by that sort of thing. But I, I read everything I could about silent movies and saw them on rare occasions when I could. And you could buy for about $7.98 these little 10-minute old Chaplin films, Mabel Norman films, and, uh, and things like that. And so that became my favorite gift of choice for the next <laughs> few years. Uh -huh. um, and then one day when I was about 11, um, yeah, I was still 11, I got my father to come out and use his movie camera and um, 
take a movie of me and my friends doing this, this sort of strange pseudo Griffith type film. Um, and, uh, and so we did it and he, he filmed two more movies. And then I think in part because he didn't really want to be out in the sun all the time, listening to his, his own son, you know, scream at um, people. Uh, he said, why don't you make your own? You know, so I started filming the, the films um, myself uh, and teaching people how to film the scenes I was in. And it taught me a little bit about camera work. And it started me both editing inside the camera. Um, you know, when I got the film, I would, you know, cut it up and change it around. But also I edited as I did it. I shot everything in the early films in chronological order so that, you know, you could watch the film and maybe I'd cut out some error here and there. But, um, and it just fascinated me. I have to say in all honesty now, and the honesty that you can uh, admit in your, you know, mid sixties, uh, <laughs> that one of the reasons uh, I did it was because I was wretched at making friends in those days. And this allowed me to invite friends over to the house and they would come and they'd star and, you know, it was kind of exciting stuff back then. And there was just starting to be this interest in, in young filmmakers. Um, and uh, so, so they would come over and I would, um, I would film them and then I'd invite them back a week or so later to watch the film. Um, and I ended up making quite a few of these and what happened was uh, one of the um, cousins of one of my actors was an actual filmmaker in New York. He was 24 years old and he did this with his wife, Iris Hoffman. His name was Dave Hoffman. And they came up and spent literally a day with Timmy Page. And they shot pictures of me showing my films and making, you know, rather tart comments about, um, some of the actors, I mean, the, the critic in me was already beginning to boil. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then they spent a whole day with me out um, making a new movie. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was very exciting. And um, it, got, it got presented a lot of places. It was presented at, I think, the third New York International Film Festival. Uh, and there was also a festival of, of young filmmakers, and I was not the youngest. There was actually a young girl who was four. Her name was Christina Rodriguez, and she was <laughs> from the Bronx, and she made what she called My Movie, and it was, it was a charming little film. Um, but, you know, it was, it was strange because all of a sudden, uh, by the time I was 12, I was signing autographs and giving interviews because they made a Kodak movie about me uh -huh. um, and the Kodak, the, the uh, Kodak commercial rather. And the basic gist of the commercial was now movie making is so easy, even a child can do it. Uh -huh. And they gave me Super 8 cameras to work with. And, uh, and I, you know, I started to develop some techniques and, um, and uh, you know, I, I worked on it for a while. And actually last year in November of 2019, I had a full evening of the films 
shown at the Echo Park Film Festival out in um, Los Angeles. And it was a lot of fun. And I chose two films, which I thought it had at least some glimmerings of artistic merit. And I talked to the audience and I, I, I have that material if, if you might want it, I can, I can send you that. But um, so it was a, um, it was an interesting, uh, it was an interesting time. And it was kind of coming back to the beginning because here we are 53 years after I made my first film. And this was the first time, I mean, some of them had been shown on television uh, and at, at different things, but it was really the first time that there was any serious interest in my filmmaking um, because um, there was a group called the Center for Silent, uh, for Home Movies. Uh, and they presented this and we're talking about doing it in New York and Chicago with this, you know, this current pandemic we're in, I should mm -hmm. mention that ever lets up and lets us start doing fun things like that again. But I was touched by it. You know, I think I had some, some small talent for being a filmmaker. And if I remained interested in that, um, I think I might've ended up actually being a filmmaker. Um, but I didn't, you know, and by the age of, you know, 15 or so, I was, you know, just, you know, just going out and getting high with my friends and pan zooming to the sun and all that kind <laughs> of stuff. So uh, I would say that after about 14 or 15, I just, I more or less just gave it up, you know? Um, and um, there we are. I was wondering, you know, you were talking about music and silent films, you know, these were your passions. I mean, were the stories of, people like D.W. Griffith or Charlie Chaplin or Caruso, were their personal stories really captivating to you? Is that what fascinated you? Well, I, I certainly read through them all, um, uh, you know, with whatever books I could find. But you know what, you know what it really was, Dave, is um, I think I was a rather frightened and um, morbid kid. And my grandfather died in the next room from me when I was almost three. And I don't actually remember it, but I do from my mom's diaries and from a few dreams and things like that. It made a really strong impression on me very early. Um, and I think one of the things that fascinated me about these films was that it had somehow granted um, about silent films and about old records was it had somehow granted these people an immortality, mm. which I didn't feel from, from say, uh, looking at drawn pictures or anything like that. Mm. It was the fact that somehow I could look at these people alive again and listen to them directly alive again. And for me, it became kind of a, a reassurance that things can live on and you can actually um, be in touch with these, these people. And I was fascinated and I read about them all the time and I watched them and um, I think in some ways it was, it was both an obsession and on some level a strange sort of comfort. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Were there 
stories in your family? I mean, were your family members storytellers or were there family stories that really kind of helped you understand who you are? Well, my mom kept diaries and my dad did at certain times. And my and once I learned a little about, about the, the times and the places, I would ask my grandmother, who um, the one who lived for a long time and came and spent a month with us every year, I would also ask these wonderful women in their 80s right down the street um, about what they remembered, including of silent films that I even then knew were lost. Wow. And I, be I became sort of a historian, just a natural historian. I, I, grew, I grew up on a college campus at the University of Connecticut. And I should add that back then, they really allowed me to do anything I wanted um, around the campus. I could take out books. I could listen to records in at the music library. And I basically educated myself. But um, I also was fascinated by the history of the town that I lived in. Uh -huh. And, you know, so I would, you know, talk to these people um, down the street without, without a recorder, alas, I really wish I had one, but I would just go for talks. And these, you know, women in their 80s would be fascinated in telling me things about when, you know, the main building at UConn burned down and, uh, and what it was like. And they'd talk about the old fire trucks coming to it, you kind of had a lot of buildings that burned down. Um, and I had a, a history of Yukon from about 1931. So I became fascinated by that. But I would go over to these people and I'd ask them about these films and they'd tell me what they remembered of the films, you know, 50 years before. And I remember I was especially fascinated by this one woman who had seen Theta Bera, you know, one of the vamps of silent mm -hmm. films. Uh, and very few of her films existed. And uh, so I talked with her about, um, about one of them, Cleopatra, which, you know, disappeared a long time ago, but there's a famous still, the Theta Bera in Cleopatra. Um, and, you know, they'd tell me what the films were like, you know, it probably wasn't that reliable criticism after 50 years, you know, and they just went to the to the flickers to, to see it, but they would tell me about it and they would tell me about books they read. And um, I lived across the street from a, for a brief time for a guy, from a guy who lived to be 110. He lived to be the oldest person in Connecticut. And I didn't really know him all that well because we weren't, we, we, we lived across the street from when I first moved to stores but, you know, getting around in a small town in Connecticut in 1963, 64 was not easy. But I do remember him telling me about visiting uh, New York right after they put on the lights, after they got gaslight and then electricity and going down to New York and just about, you know, because he, he was born in 1868. So I just missed talking to somebody who was alive in the Civil War. Wow. But um, he would tell me all these great stories about New York. And, you know, it was just fascinating. I was just, you know, I, I, I still have this. If, if something interests me, I get obsessed with it. And I, and I go around and I, uh, you know, find out all I can about it. And, and sometimes these obsessions still grab me in my, in my, you know, almost late 60s.
Right, right. I hope I'm not talking too much. No, I tend no, to talk no. a blue streak when you know people ask me questions. I'm a little like those old people I used to go visit. I can't believe anyone is interested. So no worries. You ask and I tell. <laughs> no worries. Um, so at some point you you moved toward journalism. You decided you wanted to be a writer. That became well. It, it's a little more complicated than that because okay. the 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 thing that really really got me obsessed, um, and and really from an age much earlier than the film was was music, right? And I remember, you know, by the time I was three or four, I had all sorts of impressions of music. Uh, and things I would play to again and again that would fill me with different moods. And I actually thought in a funny way, I mean, I wasn't diagnosed as having some autism until I was about 45, but I now realize that listening to music was one way I learned about feelings. I learned about tenderness and I learned about, um, you know, being... Uh, scared by things. Uh, the ritual dance of fire just drove me absolutely crazy. I was scared, but in that fun way, you know, like going to a movie to see a horror film or something. Uh -huh. um, and uh, so I, I really got into that. And then I guess I sort of got into journalism when I was about 11 or 12 and started collecting records really seriously. Um, and when I would get a new record, especially if it was a record of um, contemporary music and I didn't really understand it, what I would do was I would go up to my room and my dad had gotten a new typewriter. So he gave me his old electric typewriter mm -hmm. and I would just write a review of the record, you know, and in my own strange way. And I would tell what my thoughts were about it. And I was amazingly arrogant. You know, I'd say, oh, this is a bad piece of music, bad singer. And, you know, but the funny thing is, I still sort of feel that way about some of these, um, some of these singers and these people I was listening to. But when I got into contemporary music, I found myself just wanting to listen to the music again and again, and then going up to my room and writing maybe 500 words about it from when I was maybe 11, 12, by 13 and 14, I was doing it a lot. Um, and uh, so by the time I quit, I quit um, doing films, which is when I was about 15, 16, 17, um, I became really interested. I had a rock band for a while. Hmm. And so I was composing for the band um, and we were playing around a little bit, but, uh, and I still think, actually, I still think some of her stuff was extremely interesting for kids in remotest Northeastern Connecticut. But, you know, there was no one from record companies around to hear us. And so, you know, it didn't really um, last mm -hmm. um, very long. And our band broke up for the usual reasons, you know, differing creative views and girlfriends, quarrels and things, you know, just, just the typical... I mean, it, it, you know, you can see a lot of it in Spinal Tap, except <laughs> that we never, we never got to that kind of um, grandeur. But um, uh, so I did that. I was in a band for a while and I was in a terrible accident when I was 17 years old, which uh, killed two friends of mine. 
and sent me into just a plummeting depression. Um, and I spent about two years just basically doing nothing, reading, reading some, I always read, um, but you know, you know, the usual drugs, alcohol, that sort of thing. And then, um, when I was 20, I learned how to do transcendental meditation, which is something I still do to this day, you know, almost 46 years on. Wow. Um, and it suddenly taught me how to relax myself. Um, and, uh, so then I got in as a, as a special student, which meant my parents paid for it, um, at a, at a music conservatory, uh, which was really nice of them. And I spent two years there studying composition. Um, and then, uh, during that time, I got very interested in fiction and writing and reading. I'd always read a lot, but at that point I was just reading, you know, up to, you know, a book a day, a book every couple days, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, and I decided I wanted to be a writer. So I did two years at the Manus College of Music and I got really good grades for the first time in my life because when I was a kid, if it was something I wasn't interested in, I could not concentrate. It, it, it wasn't willfulness. I simply could not concentrate at all on sure. the stuff I was not interested in. And so what happened was I transferred to Columbia to, um, to get the rest of my degree mm. um, and to write. And I, I ended up graduating from Columbia as a, uh, it, it, with a quote unquote concentration in music and, um, and writing. Uh -huh. And, uh, and then one week out of Columbia, I sent off something I had just written for myself on the complete works of Anton Webern to, uh, to the Soho weekly news. I'd done a little bit of rock writing before, but you know, I, I, I wasn't really on top of that. But I, 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 so I sent it to this paper called the Soho Weekly News, which was a sort of village voicey type thing, but sure. less political and more about the arts. Uh, and, you know, they liked me and they put me on the masthead. And um, so I was there until that folded. And I was invited by Saturday Review to come write their re recordings page. And then that folded. Um, <laughs> And then John Rockwell um, invited me to come to the New York Times as a stringer. And I was there for, you know, five years. And then I went to Newsday, um, where I was there for seven years. And then to the Washington Post, which was the end of my daily journalism career, pretty much. I occasionally do obituaries for them and occasionally book reviews. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, that was... That was basically it. And, and then I went and I became a, um, you know, USC invited me out to California to teach journalism and music. Right. And I'm just retiring from there. And I have no idea what I'm going to do for a job when I stop getting paid. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been an interesting career. And it all seems to make, to me at least, some logical sense. And I tried to make it, you know, at least for my first 20 years, I tried to write about, you know, my childhood and, you know, the rather strange way it developed for good and for ill in a book called Parallel Play. 
Right. Um, and I sometimes think I'll go on and try to write a second book along those lines. And, you know, maybe I will, maybe I won't. Um, no, that's a great then, yeah, book. so that's love, it. Love that book. It's a wonderful. Oh, thank book. you. Oh, gosh, thank you so much. You know, I knew it was not a book for everybody, but I did think it would reach some people and, and mean something to them. And uh, I'm pretty happy with it. I do it. I do it somewhat differently now, but you know, that's the way it goes. And it's a dozen years old now. So, um, but yeah, I basically like it, you know, um, although sometimes when I pick it up, I just go, Oh God, but you know, that's, that's the writer's life, you know? I want to ask you, I mean, you mentioned, you know, the book and your Asperger's diagnosis. Um, so you did only find out or, or really the, the diagnosis didn't even exist when you were a child, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it no longer exists now. Asperger's has been put into what they now call on the autistic spectrum, which actually I think makes a whole lot of sense mm-hmm. um, uh, because it, it, you know, there, there came a time when, you know, a lot of people would found, found Asperger's syndrome sort of romantic and we were these like, weird little dream children who could do all this stuff. And the people who weren't gifted at something, which is probably the majority of them, um, would, you know, people would say, oh, you're, you're Asperger's, so you must be just great at this. They say, no, 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 I, I just want to do this. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes they don't even find out what it is they have. I, I was diagnosed in 2000 at the same time we diagnosed um, my middle son, which is not in parallel play because he was a child then. Mm -hmm. um, And I did not think it was right to out him in this way. Um, He now is, is fine with it. He's, he turns 30 this month and he's doing, you know, he's, he's doing very well. He's, he's turned out to be a remarkable young man. He didn't have the same utter obsessions that I did from a very early age, which were really what kind of saved my life. Because when I was a kid, I could, you know, I mean, I I was no older than four or five when my parents could put a, we we had one of these um, wooden states maps where, you know, you could, you you know, you know, you'd put them all together and there were only 48 when we got it. It was all, you know, just the, the, the lower, uh, you know, the, the main, mainland U.S. But, you know, they could put states into my hands when I was about four and I'd have my eyes shut and I could tell entirely which ones they were. The only ones I had any trouble with and ever goofed up were Colorado and Wyoming and, <laughs> and, uh, and New Hampshire and Vermont, you know, because I wouldn't know which side was up for that thing. But, you know, I could do that. I, I knew the names and the dates of all the presidents. I could tell you them in order by the time I was five or six. But, you know, I would go to school and they, they'd have me reading things or they'd be teaching me mathematics or they'd be doing something like that. And I couldn't concentrate. My brain would just go out the window. And I talk about a little in parallel play about how I'd go to these makeup classes which they would hold to try to catch all of us up who basically flunked the whole year mm-hmm. and i do things like take a pin along to wake me up when i started to daydream 
you know, but it wouldn't work. I'd always get, I, I basically did very well in one or two subjects. And I had some teachers who thought I was really very intelligent, but I'd annoy the hell out of the other teachers because they could not believe I could do this one thing, but not this other thing. Um, and it was, you know, it was very, very painful. It was painful and awkward. And, um, and I kept flunking out. And of course, back in the 60s, the idea of somebody autistic was somebody who never spoke or spoke very rarely or screamed a lot, which I did on occasion, um, or banged their head, which I also did on occasion. Um, uh, but, but, you know, I could also concentrate if it was something I knew about and I could concentrate it on it, you know, intensely and, um, and get it done. I mean, parallel play, you know, I mean, it took a lifetime to live, but when I actually worked on, I wrote one article for the New Yorker and then I wrote the whole rest of the book in about six weeks, Hmm. you know, which I just obsessively got into it. And with, with my biography of Dawn Powell, who was another utterly surprising obsession um, when I was about 36 or so, um, you know, I, I worked on her and I collected her letters and I, and I did her diaries and things. But when I actually wrote the book, I wrote it in about four months because, you know, it's, it's just the way I work. I have to just absolutely isolate myself and throw myself into things. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm still, another thing which we can touch on now, and I hope I'm not taking us too far off this topic because there's more to say, but five years ago, I had an acute subdural hematoma, right. which came very, very close to ending my life. And I've come back, you know, pretty well, you know, I, the first three years afterwards, I took a leave of absence after a year at USC um, when I went back there because I was getting lost on campus and I couldn't do Mm -hmm. things, but I rested a lot and I still continue to rest a lot. I try to sleep, you know, 10 or more hours a night. Um, And I've got about nine or 10 really good hours in me still, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, something that I'm, I'm happy about. I've, I'm glad I've had, it's been five years now and I continue mostly to get better and better. Um, but I have to, um, I, you know, I have to sleep and there comes a point in the day where I just say, I can't talk, you know, help me here, get me here, get me into bed. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I can get into bed by myself if I've been home, but if I'm out for, you know, um, a dinner with somebody, which I'm not out very much these days. Mm-hmm. I really, at the end of the day, I have to go to sleep and I have to just sleep it off. And mm-hmm. I, I don't talk about anything. I sometimes go on Facebook and, you know, write some things. I've become sort of obsessed with that, but I, I can't do person to person communication at that, you know, at that time. So. I was wondering, I mean, you, you know, with the Asperger's, and then traumatic brain injury, you know, these are both sort of labels that um, on the one hand, you know, they sort of give you an explanation of what you've gone through or what you're going through. But on the other hand, it seems to me like uh, they could become reductive. You know, they could yeah. you know, sort of become cookie cutter and possibly explain you away too easily. Do you feel that way? 
Uh, you, you know, a little bit. I mean, I, I got annoyed back about 2012 when a guy wrote an article for the New York Times about how Asperger's was then being wildly overdiagnosed in mm-hmm. his opinion. And he said, well, here is, um, here is Tim Page, who's won a Pulitzer Prize, who's written all these books, who's done all these things. And, um, and you know, the idea that he has Asperger's, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but, you know, none of the people who know me well find the diagnosis remotely um, peculiar. I've been very lucky and I've been able to do this. But the, the more important point, which is rarely made, is I think that all the quote unquote good things I've done with my life stem from my, my I'll call it autism now because that's what they call it. I think that it's, I think those things, the things for which I've been rewarded mm-hmm. and which have you know, caught the interest of people, I think they're at least as much to do with my autism as, as was my, um, the awful things that I did, the loss of control, the inability to concentrate, the rages that I had when I was a child, when I was mm-hmm. thwarted or I couldn't, you know, do, do something correctly. I can't think of any real, um, real benefits to having a traumatic brain injury. <laughs> um, but, you know, on, on, on the one hand, I say that and uh, some things change because I was always very stressed about everything and before it, I was always very terrified of death. You know, I think it has something, again, to do with the, the death of my grandfather at such an early age. And all my films were full of killing and people, you know, dying horribly. And, you know, I, I mean, they weren't all that way, but a lot of them were. And uh, I will say this. I think I had a real near-death experience. Um, and I was rather... Annoyed is going too far, but I wasn't really entirely delighted when they brought me back because it felt like all the tensions and the, first of all, I should say there was no tunnel, there was no light, there was, you know, nothing like that. I'm not claiming this is authoritative or not, but for me, it was just an absolute cessation. I just was not here. And when they sort of woke me up and because I passed out on a plane, uh, a a train platform and they got me to the hospital. And when they brought me back, I was not entirely happy to be brought back. Um, It felt like, you know, all of a sudden I had to deal with these, these things again, you know, and I wasn't entirely awful awfully upset about. Now, that doesn't mean if someone told me I was going to die today that I'd be really thrilled or even calm about it. But when I was actually there, it made me definitely less afraid of death than I had been all my life, which I had been seriously all my life. Interesting. Um, and, uh, And then the other thing it did was because I was always such an anxious person, um, I had, you know, without really recognizing it, I had really gotten to a point where I was pretty much drinking every single night, mm-hmm. not, not into, you know, complete oblivion or anything like that. 
But, you know, you know, when you get into your 60s, and I was 60 when this happened, uh, it's, not, it's, it's not as fun as it was when you were younger. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, it interrupts your sleep a great deal. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I basically, I, I, I never say never, because if I feel like going out and having, you know, two or three beers with somebody, you know, and just having a relaxed time, I'll do it. And I'll usually regret it the next day. I'll usually feel a little more depressed. I usually mm-hmm. won't sleep as well at night. And so I would say the two things it did was it made me less afraid of death. And it made me much, much, much less reliant on alcohol. Um, uh, and I, 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 I just drink very, very little and I'm, and I'm also just basically very calm about most things now. It's, it's not the obsessive me who had to do this, had to do that. Mm. You know, although I, I, I still do have occasional things which I, um, I feel I have to do. And we'll go into one of those later if you want. And if I'm not taking up too much time, I'll at least tell you privately about it. Okay. Because I've got um, another one which begins on Friday. So... <laughs> So one, I want so to ask, I mean, I, it seemed as we were talking about that, um, I almost felt like you sort of viewed your Asperger self or your autistic self as somehow a piece of you. Do you oh, sure. Like you can, and a benefit. you can separate that out from another Tim? Well, it's, it's a benefit. I would say for when, when it comes down to really concentrating and having to get something done. I mean, when I was a reporter, I did an amazing amount of work. Mm -hmm. I, you know, went to concerts almost every night. I mean, you saw me in the New York times more often than you saw, you know, the, the head critics. I mean, John Rockwell was also a major workaholic and he was our editor and he was also my, my great pal there and supporter. So I don't want to suggest that he wasn't working as much, but I got paid by the piece at the New York times. Uh-huh. Um, and then when I went to Newsday and to um, the Washington post, my goal became to really um, beat the New York times in anything I could. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I, I became sort of obsessive about, about that. And I worked very, very hard when I was a music critic. And I also did a lot of books. I mean, I've done, and I'm not bragging here. I'm just telling you this is the way it, it was, you know, but I've, I've either edited or written 20 books, you know, and I, I started a, a record company for a while, which was kind of a catastrophe, but the catastrophe was not me. I think the records I made were good. It was just you know, the record company and, you know, record companies, big record companies in the mid nineties were not, you know, entirely um, pleasant places to work. Um, But I ended up with lots of pleasant places to work. I loved working at the, um, at the Washington post, especially in the Graham years, because I was gone Mm -hmm. by the time Bezos took it over. Um, And I loved working at USC And I loved working even for that matter at Newsday because I was in New York. I could print anything I wanted. And I decided that I was going to go off and write about the things that really interested me. Um, And, um, you know, 
And so, so yeah, I did that. And I also think it's one of the reasons why, you know, the, the thing about autistic kids and uh, uh, most autistic people remain kids in some ways. <laughs> um, I'm convinced it's one of the reasons I got to be such good friends with Glenn Gould because Glenn was another guy who just stayed off by himself and he, he loved to talk to people and he loved to do phone talks. And, um, but you know, he was a guy who basically wanted to be kind of left alone and, you know, serious relations were very few. One of the problems I would say is I think my, my autism certainly had something to do with the breakups of my two marriages, which, you know, I'm, you know, unhappy about. But I got three wonderful kids out of one of them, and I'm still great friends with the with the other woman I was married to. So you know, it's it's not so bad. Actually, I was going to that was kind of my last question for you was about Gould, because sure. it's kind of our shared interest, um, and it seems like you know, even though he was this kind of frumpy, you know, very unkempt person, he also was extremely savvy media savvy uh, yeah. and I think he was very image savvy, you know, about his own too. image. Yeah. It seems like, and I've had this happen with other people I've spoken to or about, um, you know, that the story of Gould almost overwhelms at times his music and all the yeah. things that he recorded and achieved as a musician. Um, and it seems like he may have played into that a bit. Um, what do you think about that? Oh, I, I, I think it's definitely true. Um, I'm, I think there was a new change in him coming uh, at the time I met him. I met him over the phone when he was uh, 48. Um, and I knew him till he, uh, till he died at 50. I think there were a lot of things that he would have utterly loved that he just missed, you know? Um, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things he used to say is that he liked doing pieces in a different way. And he had this whole idea that people would be able to make recordings of right. things. And if you wanted to hear a slow version of Beethoven, you'd play Klemper for one movement. And if you wanted faster, maybe you'd put on Toscanini or something like that. Right. And I think if the internet had been around and if he had been able to actually sit down, say one morning and control things by himself, because he was a control freak, which in a way I am not, the, not the way Glenn was. And mm -hmm. I'm also not, you know, I'm not Glenn in a lot of other ways, but, but, you know, I mean, I think he would have said, okay, a Mozart sonata. Well, it might sound interesting slow and it might sound interesting fast. And so I'm going to do three or four takes this morning and then put it out on my own website because he wouldn't mm -hmm. have had to deal with, with Columbia or CBS or now Sony anymore um, at that point. And he could have just done anything he wanted decided if he wanted it out, decided if he liked it. And, you know, um, I think he would have loved the internet, just utterly loved it. Mm -hmm. And I think we would have seen a whole new side of Glenn Gould there. Mm -hmm. Now, as for the, I mean, 
he used to say actually that he knew what would sell the papers at the corner. So he definitely was very aware of his image. And he, um, uh, and I think there was a time where he almost got lost in that image mm. in the, in the 70s when he was making what most of us consider to be some of his worst recordings, you know, mm. there's a terrible Chopin sonata in B minor, which they didn't even issue on disc until after he died because somebody thought, well, it'd be nice to have a Chopin disc by Glenn Gould. And it's horrible. He hated the piece. You can tell he hated the piece. And he admitted he hated the piece. Um, and he also felt that way about some of the Mozart sonatas. I think he was becoming, he couldn't get smarter than he was when he was very young because he was enormously brilliant. And it was obvious from a very early age. I mean, he was 14 years old and he won the highest award ever given at the Royal Conservatory of Music in Toronto. Um, but he, so he couldn't get any smarter, but I think he grew wiser. Mm. And there's a very, very big difference in that. And I'm noticing that somewhat in myself, mm. you know, um, you, you, you get to a certain age and especially someone like Gould, who people were just starting to get very, very interested in him and not think of him as a freak who gave up the piano and just went out and did weird things and made weird recordings. People were actually beginning to take his, um, his, uh, um, uh, his ideas about music seriously. And because Glenn and I had talked a lot about his writing and because I, you know, with some exceptions, took a lot of what he said very seriously. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I wrote to the estate immediately after he died and said, someone's got to do his work. I talked with him about it. I'd really love to do it. And it became my first, you know, serious book, The Glenn Gould Reader, mm -hmm. which is still in print after, you know, 36 years. It's remained in print the whole time. And we're Great. talking about doing a new one because other stuff really? has come Such a, come such a seminal book, now. really good. Well, I would cut it a little now because... <laughs> The idea then was that we wanted to get, we never expected, no one, I mean, the people who knew Glenn knew him and loved him, and we're all still quite close to each other. Mm. But um, the, um, we didn't expect the huge fascination with Gould. There's something like 50 books. There are, what, 10 films, um, including one that actually has an actor in it. Um, and, you know, it's, so the idea was with the Glenn Gould Reader, we were going to do all the Glenn Gould stuff that was even remotely accessible. And for me, it's a little bulky. For me, I'd like to cut out about 150 pages mm. um, because it's not all at the same level. Um, and, but, you know, I'm, I'm glad I did it when I did it. And it was, um, you know, and it was great knowing him. And I have an article, which I'll send you by email if you haven't seen it, which is about how I think it was our shared autism, which no one would recognize as autism, mm -hmm. that, um, that made us friends. I'd love to see that. Oh, I'll send it to you. I'll send it to you when we get well, off. Thank you so much, Tim. I really appreciate your time. And oh, it's my pleasure. Really wonderful stories you shared and your insights into yourself and into writing. So, uh, Well, thank you. I will put this up when, when you put it up.
Okay. Um, and I hope I didn't go on too long because I have a tendency to do that. It's wonderful. Really. All right. All right. It's so great to see you, Dave. You too. The Story Talks Back is produced and hosted by Dave Stanton. The music you're hearing now was written and performed by Christopher Daydream. The theme music at the beginning of our show is an excerpt from Play by Merlin Twelfthoven, performed by Kronos Quartet as part of their 50 for the Future series. Please subscribe to the Story Talks Back on Podbean and check us out on Instagram. See you next time.